Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Austin Channing Brown. Austin is a media producer, the author of a selling like hotcakes and very beautiful book, and a speaker providing prescient leadership on racial justice in America. We've been fans of her work for a long time and have been eager to get the chance to chat with her. Today, we talked about why the idea of hope is more complex than just an optimism that one day everything will be okay. Why for white people, instead of striving to be nice, we need to be brave. And why for black women, the missteps of white women can sting more than that of a white man. And we also talked about how Austin anchors herself amidst the stress and emotional toll of her work. She's brilliant and has the most infectious energy. I could have talked to her all day. Okay, let's get to my chat with Austin Channing Brown. So how are you today in this moment in time? I am okay. <laughs> I am, I'm still here. Um, you know, it's, it's just weird. I mean, 2020 is just weird, right? It is just a roller coaster of a year. And I, I will say that I am feeling very loved and very supported and very seen. And I think during a pandemic, that's maybe the best that I could ask for. Yeah. I know one of the most heartbreaking parts of your book is when you talk about it, is it, go through my notes, when you talk about being in the shadow of hope and this idea that the change that we need to see will not happen in your son's lifetime or in his children's lifetime, which is true. I know we want to be more idealistic than that, but I think that we can all recognize at this point that that's true. I think we have to believe marginalized communities, right? Yeah. Um, Part of that not believing marginalized communities is how we got here because there were so many people who were saying, pay attention, listen up. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm experiencing, (laughs) you know? And when we don't believe that marginalized communities actually know more about what is broken in the world, we miss the opportunity for change. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that more people are paying attention and believing us and witnessing the evidence of what we have been saying exists in the world, but it doesn't make the best ground for hope to thrive in. Yeah. No, I totally understand. And I, you know, was talking to a friend who's Black immediately after George Floyd, sort of in those weeks of 
it seemed like primarily white women sort of having these unconscious to conscious moments and this waking up and this massive following people on Instagram and seeking out information. You lived it. I don't need to explain what that was. (laughs) And, you know, she was like, it's so exhausting. It is, you don't want to get your hopes up. It's so much attention. It is overwhelming emotionally and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're sort of already apprehensively depressed (laughs) because you know that the interest will wane. I heard this amazing quote. I can't remember who it was, but it was in Minor Feelings, Kathy Park Hong's Mm -hmm. book. And it was, I think that it was an Indian professor, poetry professor, who said that Americans sort of treat grief and race the same. They're willing to listen sort of for a minute, and then they expect you to get over it. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I feel like the number one question I got during the uprisings following George Floyd were, so, so are you hopeful now? <laughs> right? Is the, right? Is this the moment that we've been waiting for? You know? And, yeah. and not just me, right? Like a million Black people, anti-racist educators got that question. And we all were thinking, there's definitely something different here. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. definitely something unusual. We've never seen this mass following. We've never seen a New York Times bestsellers look list that looks like this, right? Like there's there's some things that are unprecedented about this moment for sure. But am I hopeful that this is the energy that we're all going to have moving forward? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine just posted the other day in the wake of Jacob Blake right? Which mm-hmm. there are a number of white people who are not shouting Black Lives Matter, right? In the wake of this. And a friend of mine just posted, now you understand why we couldn't just jump for joy, right? Now you understand mm-hmm. because, because too often whiteness just needs a hint of a reason to not be on the side of Black Lives. Right. And until Black lives are actually honored the same way we would honor a white life, what, what is my hope supposed to be rooted in? Hopeful for, for what? For who? Yeah. I mean, we were on our team meeting this morning talking about this, the, the election and this moment in time, and then this moment in time in the context of history, and you write about this too. Like it's not like we have such a such a singular version of mm-hmm. history where we're like, well, Martin Luther King said like he has a dream, and our our perspective of Malcolm X and and Martin Luther King is so singular, isn't the right, but one dimensional, right? Two dimensional, sure. yeah, for sure. And there was this idea of like, oh, and then people understood. And all those clanners just went home and became devoted anti-racist flag holders, right? That it's, it is this emergence and re-emergence over history. And if, when Trump is gone, mm-hmm. it's, I'm curious what you... And, and I really want to spend most of the time talking about nice white people because I know that we're 
we're the majority and we're <laughs> a significant problem. But what do you think will happen when, when Trump is gone? Will these, will the extreme racism that we're seeing just go and hide out in Northern Idaho again? Or now that it's out, is there an opportunity to reform it? Like, what's your perspective of history? Or do you think this will always be part of, this will just be part of the tapestry of this country and we can only hope to overrule it and be a majority and make it absolutely unokay for it to be expressed? Yeah, I think that whether or not he gets elected again mm-hmm. will have a major impact on our American story. It will say a lot to the country for him to have come down so hard on the side of whiteness, especially in recent weeks. Right? Mm-hmm. But really from the beginning. But, you know, the closer we get to the election, the more emboldened he feels clearly. And if the country elects him again in the wake of that, I have major fears about what the next four years look like. Yeah, I can't imagine either. Unchecked. Right, Right. exactly. Um, Giving it a second permission stamp, right? Mm -hmm. Then four years later, we start all over again, right? And then the question becomes, who's up? And there's no guarantee that it won't be another person who is more than willing to use race as a wedge issue. And so I, I, I think for a long time, white America was really willing to believe that the end of the 60s, marching into the 70s, was some sort of colorblind utopia. But the truth is, is that Black folks and brown folks and other marginalized communities have always been on the receiving end of injustice, right? Mm -hmm. And so so I end up with the name Austin, which is typically reserved for white men in 1984, right? The height of, but the world is colorblind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or a Benetton catalog. Didn't you get Benetton? Right. And, but my parents know without studies, without, you know, data points, without statistics, they know that I'm much more likely to get the job if I have the name of a white person. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are these realities that people of color are functioning in that white people get to ignore in the name of colorblindness. We're all one human race. Let's all just get along. But I'm a nice white person, but I would never join the clan. I don't know anybody who's racist. Right. It's been a privilege of whiteness to be able to ignore how sick this country has always been. It didn't just become sick. And how the next couple of elections go will determine whether or not we are on our way towards healing or whether or not the country just really enjoys being sick. Right. And you talk a lot about, I don't think you call, it's called relational, is it relational defense, defense, relational Mm -hmm. defense, right? Are these proximate relationships that we all use as white people as shields, right? This, well, I cannot be racist because my best friend is black or I have an adopted black child, et cetera. Or when people are like, well, you're really a good person. For, For whatever reason, goodness, 
niceness mm-hmm. and racism yep. are mutually exclusive That's when in right. reality they're not. You can be an okay, good person or trying to be a good person and do racist, yeah. messed up things. So the question is good to who? Who are you good to? Good to your children? Good to people who look just like you? Good to people who remind you of yourself, remind you of your sister, remind you of your brother, remind you of your grandpa? Right. Is that who you're good to? Because there's, there's been this illusion that even like the racist of the racist, right? So let's take your KKK clan member, grand wizard person. I'm pretty sure many of them were married, mm-hmm. and had kids and went to church and gave an offering and they were judges or policemen or real estate workers or right? Like we have this image that they were a monster all the way around. And the reality is, is that all those white people carrying picket signs, carrying signs that said the N-word, carrying signs that said you won't integrate the school. They had families, they were in love, they had children, they, right? Like they were normal, average, nice people otherwise. So good to whom? Right. Good to whom? And So this is the example that I give to to sort of try to bring it home. So we're all in a board meeting (laughs) pre-pandemic. And there's one black woman and there's two white women and everybody else is a white man. And I get up, I am Austin, I'm the black woman and I'm giving my presentation. And two minutes into my presentation, all the white men in the room are questioning me. They're interrupting me. They're giving me feedback I didn't ask for. They're right. And, and the nice white women are at the table smiling at me. They're smiling so big and bright. One of them, one of them gets up and brings me a bottle of water. Like they're just being really, really nice. And afterwards, after I have just been like torn apart by all the men at the table, one of the really nice white women comes up to me and says, you know, Austin, I just want you to know that I, I see what you just went through and I'm so sorry. Do you want to have coffee next week? All right. Yeah. That niceness doesn't serve me. It doesn't help me. It doesn't improve my working conditions. And it actually makes me more upset to know that you, you understand that you were just witnessing injustice and the best you could do was bring me a bottle of water. Right. But now you want me to pat you on the back because you could see it. Well, right. I don't want to pat you on the back. I don't want to have coffee with you. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, it's the Dolly Chug who wrote the person you want to be or the person we mean to be, but she talks about them as affirmation cookies. And we're just so desperate. We want those cookies. We'll do anything to be told that we're a good person. Right. Yeah. Instead of being nice, what we need are people who are brave. Mm. What would actually be helpful for Austin in that scenario is that one of the white women says, Hey, I, I've noticed that we have interrupted Austin four times 
in the first five minutes of her presentation. And we haven't done that to anybody. We've let everybody finish. So can we all take a step back and actually listen to what Austin has to say? Mm -hmm. Right? Step yeah. forward, step up, change the dynamic, be the one who's not nice. I'm not yeah. interested in the niceness of white people. Their, their niceness doesn't serve me. Right. And the, the proximal or the relational defense too, when it extends to women, you know, that stunning AOC speech where yes. she talks about like, stop telling me that you're married or that you have daughters, right? As, an, as some sort of defense against misogyny. Because what we also need is for the men in the meeting to say, hold up and stop interrupting. They have the most power. And it's interesting too, because it's, it is, it is, and I'm not, I'm sure you've observed the same thing. Most of my friends are white, right? right. But watching them and for good reason. And, and sometimes to the point of maybe attention seeking or, and, mm -hmm. and the problem of white tears, sure. but it's, you know, white as white women, we're sort of the ones who are really lashing ourselves, right. Stepping down, prostrating, freaking out. And for the most part, the men have been silent. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're having these conversations at hedge funds and in corporate law offices. And you would know better than I do in the work that you do. But I, it also seems like the onus, and I'm not, I, I have no judgment on this, but the onus sure. is on women, right? Sure. Like it's, it's where, where, where does that come from? Is it because the yeah. tears of white women became sort of the excuse for Emmett Till and so many other atrocities in history? Yeah, and it's, it's because women wield more power than they like to admit they wield. Interesting. And, and it's what, what is most frustrating, I think, for women of color, personal opinion only, is that white women ought to know better because women experience a certain level of discrimination, justice, injustice that ought to seem familiar <laughs> yeah. No. Right. And so it is frustrating, right? I, it's frustrating when a white woman opts into whiteness as opposed to opting into their womanhood through which mm. we could identify struggles and to watch a white woman. Honestly, what often happens is that a white woman uses her womanhood to buy my trust and then opts into whiteness when that no longer serves her. Mm. And so it becomes painful in a way that I never expect to connect with white men. Right. Whether that's fair or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <No. the> <laughs> it's a betrayal. It is yeah. it's a betrayal. And I, you know, I think a lot of women are aware of this and, and certainly more aware of this now, but yep. that the feminist movement was led by women of color. Exactly. Exactly. And we owe many of our rights to you. That's right. That's right. And yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating that a white woman could say, as a woman, I make X cents less than a white man. Mm -hmm. But that that same woman can't say, Ooh, but black women make less 
than I do. And that if you're Latina, you make even less. And if you're an indigenous woman, you make even less. So, so instead of just focusing on how much less I make, I'm gonna start fighting for the indigenous woman. Mm -hmm. Because if I fight for her, then we all improve. Yeah. Right. Instead, it's just so much easier, quite frankly, for the white woman to just focus on how much less she has, as opposed to paying attention to all women. And that's what feels like a betrayal. Because it's not that you don't recognize injustice, it's that you only care about it for yourself. Right. And I think that we all, when I say we all, white people, or anyone who leans left, make right. this mistake too of when it comes to really progressive policy, right. not understanding the power that it plays, which is that we need to be strenuously fighting, and this again, my opinion only, but strenuously right. fighting for the most extreme, right? Fighting, as you said, for the indigenous woman, fighting for the most extreme form of climate protection. It's never gonna get there, right? right. We're never gonna right. get there, but it's our best right. chance of moving anything over. It's and our duty. Yeah. Right. So, so in the same breath, we can't say, okay, men, you shouldn't need to have a wife or a daughter in order to defend my human rights. <laughs> right? <laughs> but then as a woman be like, yeah, but I'm only going to fight for my shit. <laughs> right? yeah. like, how does that work? Right? If, if are we for human rights? Are we for human flourishing? Are we upset by the injustice everyone experiences because we know what injustice feels like. Mm -hmm. And are we absolutely convinced that my freedom is tied to the freedom of others? Right. And as women, if we could all recognize that we are on the same side, I think that the patriarchy, whomever, every single system has done such an incredible job, even sort of the ambivalence that everyone feels about working parents, right? Yes. And then this fake mommy war, but they are so good at sowing discord so that we all suffer. And when you, we're the majority sure. and I don't know, I guess your, your son's not in school yet, but let me not tell yet. you mm-hmm. when he gets to school, the girls are going to kick his ass. <laughs> These girls are, my have a, a two boys, seven and uh-huh. four. My son is in second grade. Uh-huh. The boys, see if there are a few, a few exemplary sure. boys in there. But for the most part, the girls mm-hmm. are like two great levels ahead of them. It is staggering. <laughs> yep. And I don't know if, if that ever stops or if we have just been conditioned to keep ourselves small. But yeah. when you look at the countries faring best in COVID, when you think about our style of leadership, our ability yes. to nurture and take care yes. of what we've already created in the world yes. in terms instead of making more destruction. Yep. Like, can we just all get on side and <laughs> fix this hot mess? We could. Um, we could. We could, right? And, and that, is where, that is where hope lies, right? So that is why so often people of color don't think about hope as some sort of like optimism that one day everything is going to be well. <laughs> right? like, yeah. And speaking for Black women in particular, 
historically that hope has been in like spirituality, right? That, but one day after I'm gone, everything will be okay. (laughs) But, but not in this world, you know? And so for us, hope has been what we owe to one another as human beings. It is about duty. It is about my responsibility to my grandmother, to my son, but also to myself. Mm -hmm. I am worthy of being dignified by the systems and structures in the country in which I live. Yeah. And I won't accept less. And so now hope isn't something that I'm like chasing. It is simply the way that I live my life. It is what I'm doing. Hope is what I'm doing. Yeah. So if we're in a a death match between sort of the divine feminine, keeping in mind Mm. every every man has divine feminine in them, And, and the patriarchy sure. and there are obviously patriarchal women, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like take us through how, what's, can you, can you draw out the field for us? Like, what do you want to see? What needs to happen? Wow. <laughs> oh God. So much, right? I know. <laughs> so no pressure. And I think, <laughs> but you know, I actually think that's a good place to start because one, I don't think that we should begin minimizing how much work there is to do, right? Like what's, mm-hmm. what's the point of that? Like, let's not minimize. Oh, we need a whole, we need a fresh start on we every need a fresh start, level, right? Yes. And because we need a fresh start on every level, we need every woman and her passion, mm-hmm. right? Her divine inherited passion that she's never been able to shake, that just won't go anywhere, that she does whether she gets paid for it or not, right? Her commitment to education, her commitment to those who are fighting against mental illnesses, her commitment to destroying the criminal justice system, her commitment to closing the wage gap, her commitment to, right? Like we need everybody because there's so much work to do. And so often when I'm like giving a workshop or lecturing, uh, women will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, what should I do? And I was like, I don't know. What's your name? (laughs) We've never met before. I have no idea what you should do, but I think you do. Yeah. I think you do. I think there is something divine, spiritual within you that knows exactly what is yours to do. And I'm asking you to have the courage to go do it, not just with your own reward in mind, but tell me about the most underprivileged, the, the, the poorest, the, right, the queerest, the, right, like, tell me how what you're doing is going to impact the person who is at the bottom of the hierarchy that injustice creates. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. 
But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. How do you find, you know, I'd asked, this is an early, this is in 2016, right after the election, and I was interviewing Marianne Williamson, and I was like, how do we, how do we stay engaged? Da, da, da. She like slapped me, more or less. I mean, she was so mad at me, and understand, rightfully, but she was like, you know, that is the most white ass privileged thing to say. <laughs> right. And then after, cause I was like, this is exhausted, you know, I'm exhausted. We're exhausted. Right. And she was like, do you think that when in Salma that they weren't tired, like listen to yourself, which was resonant. And then after she offered some tips for sort of mm-hmm. sustenance and saying in it, it does feel like what you said, all of the issues, like we need in an ideal fantasy some organizing structure of like baton tossing back and forth. How do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you stay engaged? Well, I know it's life or death. Yeah. I mean, one is like, what's the other option? Right. Which is her point. (laughs) What's the choice to not vote? Like, I don't understand. Right. So just not have voting rights. Like that's, that's not an option. So on a very real level, right. It really is about survival. In a more intangible framework, though, it is recognizing that I can't do it by myself. Mm -hmm. I can't. There are going to be days when I take a vacation and there are going to be days when when something hot in the news happens and I don't respond. Mm -hmm. Or there's something happening in your kid's school district that I don't even know about. Right. Right. I have to trust. Part of this work is trusting that... I'm not by myself and that there are people all over this country, all over this world who believe in racial justice, who believe in justice for all. And that is where I have to stay anchored that this, this whole project called racial justice is not dependent on me. Right. Well, <laughs> right? You're, you're doing a big part. I'm, I mean, I'm trying, right. I'm doing yeah. my best. I'm doing my best to show up. But I also recognize that I will never be doing what Brian Stevenson is doing. Mm. And I will write and I will never be doing what Kamala Harris is doing. And I will never be mm, doing. Maybe. I don't I I hope not. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> I hope not. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad that she is, right? And I'm glad right. that Stacey Abrams is rising to the occasion where she is. And I'm glad AOC is rising where she is, but I also want Roxanne Gay to never stop writing. And I also want, you know, and yeah. so it is, it is a celebration of the work that we are all doing right where we are mm-hmm. and the recognition of how important that work is. I recently, every now and again, I'll just toss out a question on my Instagram page to just kind of see what people are learning and what they're thinking. 
And one question that I did a couple months ago was the question, what are you most passionate about as you think about racial justice? And there were so many people who wrote, has to be education, has to be healthcare. Like, has to be. Like, if you, if you claim that you are interested in racial justice, these are the two areas that you mm. must fundamentally care about. And while I appreciate that passion, it's not true. Right. It's not true. I'm thrilled that you are passionate about education, but I also need people who are passionate about housing because that's how we decide how education gets funded. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's great that you care about education, but what about the kids who have already dropped out? What do we have for them? Do they not deserve a livable wage? Do they not deserve to be able to feed their families? Do they not deserve housing simply because they didn't place as much emphasis on education as you did? Right. Right? So I think part of what we need to do is not just recognize that, that other people are passionate about other things, right? But to look at those intersections and say, thank God you're there. Can I talk to you about this? Mm-hmm. I love that you care about education. Can I talk to you about the juvenile justice system and how we continue to make education interesting for kids who are not in school? Because I could really use help with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're really passionate about criminal justice? Well, fantastic. I, I don't know anything about criminal justice, but I'm really passionate about this school over here and this school is crawling with police. Can we talk about the school to prison pipeline? Because I'm not sure what to do about that. I need to know more about the criminal justice system. Right. right. So we also need to do a better job of linking arms with one another and realizing that there is no one system of injustice. They are all unjust. And that is why all of our work matters. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. One of the parts of the of your book that I love so much, and well, before I get to that, actually, I thought that this was really sort of striking and, and I would say hit me t- to the core was when you were talking about elementary school and being right. one of the only black girls at an el- elementary school and the fact that it gave you sort of an advantage, right? Mm-hmm. That you write, but rather than my race being the elephant in the room, it seemed instead to be my secret knowledge. I knew all about the world of my white teachers and peers, but they didn't seem to know anything about mine. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say for 
vast majority, right? Not right. only because we, we live in a culture that's segregated, right? And assimilation is certainly not the answer that's to right. that. That's right. But there is a certain, there's an extreme separation between cultures, right? That's and right. a lack of familiarity. That's right. So how, what's the antidote to that? Is it yeah. sort of listening to Black Twitter, obviously not saying anything, but just mm-hmm. observing mm-hmm. and understanding? It's certainly not going to Black Church, I know. I listened to your conversation <laughs> with Brene. Um, Do you know how many people were mad at me for telling them not to go to a Black church? It was the thing that I got the most pushback on after doing that interview with her. From the Black community or the white community? White. White people were so Why? upset. You, because I get it. people aren't used to being told what to do. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the Black... <laughs> I really want to talk about Black Jesus, but, yeah. but what is to build comfort at stamina, you yeah. know, because you write, you talk about that. Like you can just smell it, right? Mm-hmm. The discomfort <laughs> and sort of lack of fluency. And yep. I can say that that's totally accurate and true. I grew up in Montana, um, <laughs> you know? Right. So, so you know. Uh-huh. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. This is a really difficult question to answer because what energetic newly initiated white people really want is to suddenly lead a diverse life, right? So they want the diverse friends and they want the diverse church and and they they recognize that there has been an absence and now they want to be full. Mm -hmm. The issue with that is that it it is still too easy to ignore the racial dynamics that are occurring when you come closer to me or I come closer to you. Mm-hmm. Quick outside example. I was watching a movie that I think is called The Color. It was, so there's a movie called The Color of Fear and that sort of like scenario um, in which men were sitting around talking about race got replicated. And so there's another video, I'm sorry, I don't know what it's called, but there's another video in which this circle of women is talking about race. And a white woman is in the circle and she's in tears. And she's in tears because she knows one of the black women in the circle. Mm-hmm. And she says to her, whatever her name is, let's say Austin. She says, Austin, I, I have been trying really hard. I've been trying so hard to, to be nice to you, to befriend you, to like support you and right tears. I don't know what else to do. And the black woman leans back in her chair and she says, I need you to know that when I decide to become friends with another white person, I am doing so on my hands and knees, crawling across the shards of broken relationships Mm. that I have already had to endure. Mm. holy shit (laughs) I was like I felt that on a very deep level right wow that's so often uh white folks don't realize that there is a history that has occurred before you showed up there's a history that I've had with police there's a history that I've had with white male pastors. There's a history that I've had with white Christian spaces. There's a history that I've had with white teachers. There's a history that I've had, right? That Mm -hmm. that you aren't meeting a blank slate. You are meeting a real human being. 
who has been trying to figure out how to navigate this long before you showed up. Yeah. Posture matters, but also if, if I had to name like, like the, the point, right? <laughs> if we have like a, a triangle or a ladder, right? That we're trying to sort of move people up the ladder. One of the significant points on that ladder is the recognition that being my friend, being my lover, being my support, being my advocate is not the work. There is nothing wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I am not the work. So if your answer to how are you participating in racial justice is I'm friends with Austin, that is a problem. <laughs> I am not the work, right? Yeah. The work are the systems and structures that keep me from flourishing. That's the work. So you going out to lunch with me, you going to have coffee with me, you giving me a fruitcake every Christmas, I don't care. Mm-hmm. That's nice, but that does not change the systems that I must navigate that I know you can see, but it's so much more fun to just be my friend than it is to speak up and against a system that profits you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was stunning. And I, now I have to, I, I hate to even ask you another question and just not <laughs> leave it at that. Um, <laughs> but I, I, so I was raised, my dad's Jewish. I wasn't really raised in any faith. My mom's a recovering Catholic, mm-hmm. went to an Episcopalian high school, mm-hmm. sort of that style. I'm very interested in, in the world, not only of religion, but spirituality, like what's the structure, yada, sure. yada. Sure. And I'm very enamored with Mary Magdalene. I'm very yeah. interested in Jesus as a historical figure. Sure. And, and then at the same time, um, perplexed by organized <laughs> religion, such right? Such a perfect word. <laughs> yeah. Yes. By perfect. organized religion and, and how yeah. these things have been perverted over mm-hmm. millennia and decades. And when you think about the evangelicals and Trump, when you think about what's been done in the name of Jesus and in the name of God yes. against people. Yes. Anyone who's not perplexed. He's not perplexed, right? Yes. <laughs> I think you ought to be perplexed. <laughs> right. But when you write about the Black church and Black Jesus, I mean, I understand why people want to go, but can you right. sort of talk about <laughs> Black Jesus and yeah. what, what to me, read is a much truer mm-hmm. avocation of who he was. Yeah. And he was probably more Black than white, let's be honest. <clears throat> Um, (laughs) that was my silent amen, my cough amen. So let me go all the way back. Well, first, let me say that there there is an like actual academic theological framework around black Jesus, right? Um, So I think some people sort of read that phrase and think that I've said something provocative when the truth is, this is, this is a theological framework that has been richly studied, right? Mm -hmm. But to take it out of seminary right, and into how I actually discovered like the difference, I have attended Christian schools my entire life and multiple churches. So Assemblies of God, Episcopalian, Catholic high school, you know, I am, I'm all over the place. So I understand what you're saying. And having gone to Christian 
white, predominantly white schools, I would go to a chapel service every Friday afternoon. We all went and a white guy would get up and he would give some spiel about how we need to listen to what our mom says. We need to not lie. We need to be careful about the words that come out of our mouths. Like very 101 Christianity. Here's how to be a good kid. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Every Friday. Okay. And that was, that was what I knew of Christianity, right? Then I walk into a black church for the first time at 10 years old, like my church, like I'm sure I'd been to church before, but what became my church at 10 years old. And instead the sermon sounds a lot more like, and in the second book of Exodus, God comes down from heaven to free the slaves who have been in service for 400 years. Mm -hmm. He hears the cries of his people. And in the person of Moses, he dot, 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 right? Huge difference. Right. Right? In one context, God and Jesus and love is all about how I behave. It's mm. about a checklist. It's about, right, whether I have done right or wrong. And it's easy. Don't lie. <laughs> right? It's very simple. Don't say mean things to your sibling. Right? But then I go into this Black church and suddenly I'm being told that God cares about the person who is struggling with an alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. And God cares about the woman whose car broke down last week and now she doesn't know how to get to work. And I'm being told that, that God can be a, a, a doctor in the sick room and a lawyer in the courtroom and uh, right all these phrases that have, that have enlivened us potentially for centuries. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm meeting a God who isn't just interested in how I behave, but is interested in my whole life Mm -hmm. and who isn't afraid of brokenness and who isn't afraid of poorness and isn't afraid of someone with an addiction and isn't afraid of, right. Hasn't, hasn't forgotten, hasn't left them right. That there's this God who cares, who cares about the poor, who cares about the enslaved who cares about women, who, who talks to sex, sex workers. Right. Like, can I find out more about him, please? Mm-hmm. Right. And so there was this significant difference that began to be developed over time about a, a black Jesus who doesn't just care about these things, but endured them, who died yeah. by state violence who was called a hypocrite and a heretic, who didn't know who his dad was, you know, who was the quote unquote bastard child who was homeless, who didn't have a place to lay his head, right? That it isn't just that God cares about these people, God is these people. And that is a revelation. That is a revelation. And that's an experience, right? That's God as an experience of life. And that's God as a direct relationship rather than arbitrated through some priest or some church or some external authority. That is 
God embodied and felt rather yes. than a theological idea of, as you say, who to be yeah, and what to do. That's right. That's right. Well, someday, well, maybe we can watch Black Church from afar. Right? <laughs> And let me tell you, because this goes back to posture, right? So I know of very few black churches that don't have at least one white family who's there. Okay. Lots of black churches have their one white token. Fam- I don't, I'm just kidding with the token, but um, <laughs> I have one white family. But that one white family isn't there to treat the church as a zoo. Like, oh, right. look at that woman praise dancing over there. Oh, look at how they use the tambourine, right? It's not a, it's not a zoo. That family is there to worship a God that they believe in. Yeah. And and too often what happens is white people treat spaces that they are not used to, spaces that they have not controlled, as spaces that need to be fixed. Interesting, but still need to be fixed. Right? Right. So I need for the white family who goes to not complain about the three-hour service. Yeah. You can go, but you got to be quiet and you got to think about why is the service this long? Are there any historical reasons for why Black people might want to stay in church surrounded by only themselves for a while? Right. right. But too often the posture, um, the posture of white supremacy has not been undermined enough to actually understand and participate in what the Black church is doing. And that is why I don't want white people flooding it. Because yeah. there is a richness, there is a culture, there is a way of doing things that is beautiful, but is very easy to not understand. Right. And white supremacy is, you know, one of its foundational poles is comfort for white people. Exactly. You know, exactly. we really don't like to be uncomfortable or put out or inconvenienced. And you know the best way to do everything. Yeah, right? Like, yes. you, know, you know how long the church service should last. You know what would have to happen and how that sermon needs to be cut down. And you know, right? Like, yeah. And, and it, it's a that's whole, atrocious behavior. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a whole conversation about judgment, right? That's and right. this idea that, like, who are we, any of us, to judge each other and to decide what's fair or right or equitable. We've done a shitty job and yet we still feel like it's our duty to keep (laughs) our opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And decide how other people should be living and what's right for them. And that's right. You know, and we know best. And the truth is, even though Brene and I ended up having this conversation about black Jesus, the truth is, is that most people of color don't want a flood of white folks into any primarily black space, right? There was this whole movement in Christianity about white people moving to the hood and people in the hood are like, could you, could you not? (laughs) Could you, could you just leave our, our stuff alone? Could you go change a system? Right. Could you go talk to the police? Could you like, could we talk about how we fund our schools? Like, could we actually do something that's helpful? You simply moving in is not helpful. Same thing with the black church. If you really want to learn about Black Jesus or a theological framework that is rooted in an ethnic heritage, there are lots of ways to do that without actually showing up at somebody's church and demanding that they teach you. Right. No. And that's, you know, I think I've, I've been, I talked to Ibram X. Kendi earlier yes. in COVID and we were, we talked a lot about the idea of assimilation and this, yes. like, and 
you know, something that I think so many of us have been like, well, isn't that the whole, like, aren't we trying to assimilate? And he's like, how would you want to be a certain percentage of the population for the rest of your life? Like if you're indigenous, is that how you want to live your life being sort of the 1% in the room? And so I think one of the, the, clearly we need equity, right? Equal funding for schools, And all of these systems need to be retooled. And then when we have true equity, Mm -hmm. then I think we can decide not so much assimilation, but like how how do we all come together in ways that feel good and are productive and aren't about tokenism or checkboxes? Exactly. But that has to be the work, right? Mm -hmm. And too often what white people really mean when they say I want to be anti-racist is I want to have more black friends. Whether that's at church or that's in the neighborhood or whatever, right? Like ultimately what it boils down to is I want black people to like me and to tell me that I'm a good person. Yeah, no, I can't say that I disagree with you. I want to say, oh, that's not right. But that's obviously, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And... But yeah. black people have friends. Like, I hate to break it, too. <laughs> I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I have friends. I have great friends. Right? What I'm looking for is a co-conspirator, right? What I'm yeah. looking for is people who will join me arm in arm and name the system and name what is broken and and be willing to be put out the family or be willing to lose all your Facebook friends or be willing to be fired because now you are the nuisance who speaks about racial justice too much, right? Like what I yeah. need are people who can see what is wrong with the system and are going to go after that thing, whether we are friends or not. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for everything. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Austin Channing Brown. Her book is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, and it is stunning. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.